from Anchor FM, this is Etch the Edges, where we climb the steep cliffs of the divide, the issues that separate us from the right and the left, and we do the hard work of closing that divide. Find the common ground we know we all share. Hi, I'm B.S. Brown, your host, and together we will etch the edges. America has often been at the crossroads, and yet here we are again. What do we do? And how do we do it? Together, let's get into it. Our purpose? To do the work. To truly peel away at the extremes, for it's the extremes, the extremes that divide us. The tail is wagging the dog. Small groups of people with outsized voices are commanding the stage, and the rest of us? Well, the rest of us suffer for it. It's time for all that to change. Let's lean into discomfort. Let's have the hard conversations, and together, let's etch the edges. Welcome back to Etch the Edges. As ever, our work is always to close the ideological divide and get some insight into dynamic people who are doing their very best to make the world we live in a lot better. Today's special guest is Daniel Blackman, and he is running for public service commissioner. Daniel, would you please introduce yourself? <laughs> First of all, man, it's an honor to be on, man. As I told you uh, pre-call, uh, we just got back from Valdosta. Uh, man, we've been to Columbus, Albany, Valdosta, Savannah, uh, Macon. I mean, we've been all over this state, and uh, folks have been very much embracing of our movement. Uh, of our agenda, our conversation. And for those that don't know, um, again, my name is Daniel Blackman. The Public Service Commission uh, regulates our public utilities. So when you think of your electric bill, your gas bill, uh, please understand that as much as it's important to get John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock elected on January 5th, uh, down ballot elections matter, man. So a position like this that affects your pocketbook is of the utmost importance, especially for those of us who understand the importance of wireless broadband and giving kids all over this state access, man. If we can't get online, we can't learn. If we can't learn, we can't compete. And if we can't compete, our kids get left behind, man. So we wanna focus on building that and changing that narrative for so many families on the outside looking in. That is powerful, Daniel. That's exactly what we need. In your commercial, you hit on something that I found um, stimulating, amusing, yeah. and at the same time, very thoughtful. You said, uh, you got tired of seeing kids in Wendy's parking lots trying to get access to the internet. And you just spoke on that a little bit in, in the intro there. Elaborate more on that. What are we talking about when we say kids in parking lots trying to access the internet? Really? So, yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, it, it's crazy how it happened. So back in April, um, I was driving, I think I was going to Albany, Georgia. And while I was driving, I saw this lady that was parked um, kind of like, you know, how when you have a drive through line and I saw a lady that was parked there and I thought initially she was in the line, but her car was kind of like at an angle. And when I saw her car, I kind of just skimmed over because I was trying to go through the, uh, the drive through and I saw two kids in the back seat with laptops. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I was online probably for about 15, 20 minutes. I don't even know why I stayed in line that long, but when you travel throughout rural Georgia, man, there's not a lot of food options. So I, I found a Wendy's. And I think I was gonna get a French fry or something. There's something just, it didn't even make, I don't remember what I ordered, but I remember being in line for that long and coming back 
and um, the lady just sitting there. And that's when it really hit me, man. Um, as I would travel around the state, I began to see that more frequently, people in their cars. Um, then I saw this picture on the internet of these two girls. Um, I think they were, they were sisters maybe, and they were sitting on a curb um, using the internet and someone snapped a picture of it. And uh, you know, it, it's just, it's heartbreaking because a lot of times we campaign and we work really hard to get elected. And you know, we try to beat people over the head about the importance of voting. And uh, we don't see the impact on the communities uh, whether Trump is on the, on the, uh, on the, uh, in the election or not, um, this isn't just about Trump. You know, Trump has done a lot of damage to our country, in my opinion. But in that same respect, um, these communities, man, that, you know, have been fighting, voting, working, scrapping, trying to survive for the last, you know, forever. Um, those folks are left behind, man. And, and I'm privileged to be on a statewide ballot so that I can actually see it for myself, man. And it's, it's heartbreaking. Uh, to see these entire streets. I went to one community and uh, I think probably 10 or 15 houses on one street, one street, um, the power was disconnected. Um, and, you know, I, I think it just goes to show that economics and pocketbook issues have really impacted our community. So thank you for bringing that up, man. I mean, it's, uh, you know, having a family of my own, man, it breaks my heart when kids don't have access to education and uh, no parent's income should determine their parent, their, their children, no parent's income should determine their children's outcome. And I think we need to really focus on honing in on that message. That is a powerful, a powerful statement, Daniel. And, and yeah. the fact that you travel through the state and see that time and time again speaks volumes about what it is you're trying to do and what's inherent in your message. I, I you know, I too feel that, you know, I have a family and we have access, right? Yep. You know, we, we have what can only be called a certain amount of privilege. But the challenge is, like you said, your, your pocketbook should determine your outcome. And all politics is local. We often forget that. So it's just like you said, even though we've got this big runoff coming, what you're trying to do here is just as important. And, and you That's speak right. to on your site from a platform perspective, you talk about economics. Well, you got this COVID-19 thing that's going on, right? You know, this little COVID-19 thing, a pandemic, right? And that, and that hurts people. And, you know, I understand that you want to do something about that. And it's all part of the same, same attack, the same, you know, the things that we're being put through because of our politics. We, we can all understand where we need to go and what we need to do. But we're challenged because of our divide and what we think should be done by party. We got to bridge that. And I know you have a message for that. Yeah, you know, I, I think that there's certain things that we have to just sit back, um, whether we're candidates or we're elected officials, and we have to sit back and just recognize that some issues are bigger than politics, man. A, a single mom out there trying to make ends meet, um, you know, it, it shouldn't be about, you know, what party are you affiliated with? You know, a senior citizen on a fixed income, their income is fixed. You know what I'm saying? So when that utility bill goes up, when a person with a fixed income, their pay don't go up, the, the, the income stays the same. And, um, you know, th these are issues that we got to fight for, man. Just today, uh, i give you an example that has nothing to do with my campaign. Georgia's Secretary of State certified an election, and he said, you know, um, I'm a Trump supporter. Um, you know, not me, because I know that people are watching, but <laughs> the Secretary of State of Georgia yes. said that he's a Trump supporter, and he said, but I had to certify this election and do the right thing, and Joe Biden won. Right. And I think that says a lot about the integrity that is needed in this moment, regardless yes, yes. of a person's political 
participation. Um, I don't care if, if, a, if a, you know, white family in rural Georgia, um, you know, below the, the, the poverty line is Republican, man, I don't want their lights cut off no more than I want the next person's light cut off. I don't care if they're Democrat, Republican, independent, gay, straight, you know, rich or poor, you know, I think equity is equity and we should be making policies and decisions based on that. When the moratorium ended in the state of Georgia, for those that don't know, the governor announced a, a statewide pandemic, a public health crisis in late March. Um, immediately, uh, the state went into a state of emergency and the uh, utilities and evictions were under what's called a moratorium, which means no one could be evicted from their home and no, one power, no one's power could be disconnected. Well, that ended um, on July 15th. Um, evictions, uh, about 23 million Americans run the risk of being evicted on January 1st, 2021. Uh, and that's scary. You know, it's scary for people that are out here that are trying to keep food on the table and keep their kids in a warm bed at night, especially going into the winter season. Um, and, and you got to think about that, you know, moratorium ended in Atlanta. Uh, within the first few days, 66,000 um, Atlantans were at risk for having their power disconnected. So when I talk about these issues, man, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying it as a candidate. I'm not saying it as a Democrat. I'm saying it as a father, as a, as a husband, a father, a family man, a, a person that just has neighbors and knows people that have struggled, man. And, you know, that, the thing I want people to understand more than anything else about me is I was raised by a United States Army Ranger, two-parent household, and they taught me, you know, the basic principles of integrity and, um, and you know, taking initiative. And when you see something that's out of place, you fix it. You don't complain about it. You don't walk off and say what you would have, should have, or could have done. You, you, when you see something, you address it and you try to solve the problem rather than you try to be a part of the solution rather than being a part of the problem. And um, that's what we've tried to do, to do with my campaign. And, you know, it's resonated and it's gotten us into a runoff. And we hope that we can continue this process through the January 5th primary. I mean, runoff. That is that, that you're saying it all. You're saying it all. You're hitting the right buttons. I, I, I would like for you to explain to the listeners, you know, because we all can only do so much and we all have to do our part. There's a give and take. And that's a given in politics, right? So we elect you. you. You get the position, you get the job. Well, we do know that you'll have to go against corporations that exist for a profit motive because that's, that's the right. state of business. But what will you do? How will you become actionable in that vein to try and take care of your fellow Georgians when we know not only with the fact that the moratorium is over, but rate increases are always looming and people are just trying yeah. to make a living, let alone thrive. How are you going to fight that when you're in office? I think people need to understand that um, there's a fundamental difference between campaigning and governing. Um, the same people that get me elected are going to have to be the same people to hold me accountable. And they're also going to have to be the same people that build the kind of coalitions that are needed for people like me to be successful. Uh, the Public Service Commission is a six-year term. It's a five member commission. So what I want people to understand first and foremost is I'll probably get outvoted every time. You know, I mean, they're, they're currently five Republican commissioners. Uh, they're not bad people. You know, some of them are, are, you know, good, good individuals. I just don't agree with their policies, nor do I agree with their interactions. Uh, specifically, you know, my opponent, 82% of his money comes from the utility companies he regulates. And um, I think it's, uh, it's hard for me to believe that someone has my best interests when they're taking money from folks that are continuously raising my utility bill. 
you know, and that's never, that's a nether conversation for another day. But, um, but you know, I, you know, I, I think, you know, I want, what I want people to know is number one, I'm big on education. Um, I believe that within, you know, in a six year term, I'm going to take my first two years to go around this state and educate the community. Uh, there's no other way we can make progress if people don't are left in the dark, literally and figuratively. Uh, we got to get the churches, we got to get the schools, the community leaders, the civic organizations, uh, you know, everybody. We got to get folks involved, all hands on deck. We got to get our historically black colleges involved. I went to Clark Atlanta, my wife went to Spelman. Uh, we got to get uh, our technical colleges involved, like Savannah State. Um, I'm sorry, not Savannah State, but Columbus State um, and other schools around the state. We got to get people involved. We got to make this conversation palatable. We got to make this conversation fun. We got to target K through 12 education so kids understand the importance of cutting the lights off. I know a lot of people that are watching remember when your grandmother used to say, cut them lights off when you leave the room, right? I mean, we got to get back to those principles that got us to where we, to where we are. We, we have a campaign, uh, one of our campaign slogans for the runoff is vote like your lights depend on it, right? <laughs> and we, we love it, it's fun, um, but really your light is your life. You know, without light, without energy, without gas in, in a, in a, on a gas stove, um, you know, we're a much different society. And uh, so we're gonna work to not only make this attractive and fun and, and, and informative, but here's how I win as a, as a commissioner, even if I'm outvoted by informing the community. When's the last time you saw a public service commissioner coming on a, on a radio show? A you know, what? when's the last time a candidate that's running for a utility regulation position and no one knows about has put over 30,000 miles in his car just to drive around the state to make sure people are educated. Uh -huh. So I want you to know that if, if, I, if I'm doing this to get elected, you better believe I'm gonna do this to stay elected and to make sure that people are in the know, man. And what got me into this really quickly I would not be in the position I'm in now if Hurricane Katrina didn't happen. Uh, my church, we went down to New Orleans, the lower ninth ward, um, to just get two families out. We took two SUVs down to New Orleans. We were able, by the grace of God, man, to get into New Orleans. And uh, man, we saw everything from bodies floating in the water to uh, you know women and children struggling to walk through water. I mean, we, we saw it all. We saw the devastation. And I remember meeting a guy from FEMA uh, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, for those that don't know. And this guy says to me, he says, yeah, um, when uh, the levees broke, the, uh, it wasn't just the levees that broke. He said the, the, the storms are getting more violent. And he used this term called extreme weather. And, and I, I, I know about hurricanes and tornadoes and floods, but I never heard somebody talk about extreme weather because the climate pattern had changed. And that's when I was like, man, like, you know, if this is happening because of something that we have a, a impact in doing, right? Like think about it, the fossil fuel industry, the fact that in the United States, you know, there are 322 million people in the United States, there, there are 7 billion people in the world, but we're 50% of the global waste, right? Why? Because most of our households that can afford it got two or three cars, right? We're, we, we, we're wasteful people, right? 40 billion tons of food is wasted in the United States every year, 40 billion tons. So when I got into this space, I started to realize I have to find a place where I fit in because I wasn't seeing a lot of people that looked like me. And that was a motivating factor. I was like, if I don't see people that look like me as an adult, who do my kids look to? So I figured to my point that I made earlier, if you see a problem, you fix it. I saw a gap and I decided it needed to be filled and I've had the support we've needed to get this far. So, you know, even this platform, brother, thank you for letting me tell my story. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think you, you hit on something, again, 
very powerful message. You're going to be going around telling people what it is you're doing and why. It's like yeah. I said, um, hearing from a public service commissioner, a what, a who, a when, <laughs> why? That, that is not normal. But again, all politics are local, right? And, right. And, and you made it real plain. So I asked you a pointed question and you gave me a direct answer. You're going to be serving on a commission where there's going to be a lot of ideological opposition. But you can't do it alone. We've got to be there for you. We've got to be there to back you. And we have to internalize the fact that the things that you're calling out, they really do affect us. They affect our everyday. Light is life. And, you know, as an adult with a family, I see the responsibility of that. But I also have to make sure I'm I'm imparting that to my child. And I know one of the things you you just handed on, it's it's in your platform. You want to activate the HBCUs. You want to focus on that. You know, tell us more about that. What does that plan look like? It's simple, man. You know, there's there's an organization that a good friend of mine met just called the uh, HBCU Green Fund. And um, I remember when I went to Clark Atlanta University, uh, I, I didn't see people that were saying, hey, you know, you should you should go into um, the clean energy sector. You should go into the environmental justice space. Like nobody was telling me that. Uh, I met Van Jones when I was very young. And at the time, Van had an organization called Green For All. And um, Van was training brothers in Oakland. Uh, he was like, man, if you a felon, he was like, you know, you may not have a, a high school degree or, a degree or a college degree, but I could teach you how to put a sol- solar panel on the roof of a house. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, you can create jobs with this. And I, I began to think, you know, when I, when I first got involved in this space, I began to just think about it. Like, why aren't we teaching um, our, our historically black college students uh, about these, this new sector. I mean, imagine if somebody came to us 20 years ago, right? I'm, I'm 30, I'm, I'm sorry, 30. I just took 10 years off my age. I'm 41. <laughs> I'm 41 years old. And I remember when America Online came out and MySpace and Black Planet, nobody came into our schools and said, hey, you know what? There's this thing called Silicon Valley. If you get in now, you may, you may become very wealthy one day. You'll be able to take care of your family. You'll be prosperous. Nobody told us that. And for those of us that did know, many of us that had access didn't share that access. And I'm not throwing anybody under the bus. I'm just saying that culturally, as a community, we haven't shared information to the extent that I believe we should as Black people. I'm talking to Black and Brown communities right now because we see institutions around the country where there are are non-Black serving institutions that are predominantly white, right? And we see all these opportunities, right? Like at Stanford got a program called StartX just for entrepreneurs and you could fail. They just give you money to try a business, right? I mean, why don't we have those those infrastructures in our facilities? So I began to think about targeting minority serving institutions and HBCUs because, not because I don't wanna include anybody else, but because I don't want people to tell us that you guys are good for sports, entertainment and politics. You know, talk Hmm. to us about law. Talk to us about physics. Talk to us about engineering. Talk to us about clean tech. Talk to us about environmental issues. Talk to us about things that we're not exposed to. So again, man, I mean, it just goes back to that core of if you see a gap, you fill it. If you see a problem, you solve it. And you said something earlier, man, that really hit me. We, We tend to know about the mayor and the governor, right? But these down ballot elections, man, because Democrats, we do a good job of swinging for the fence. I'm gonna use a baseball analogy. We try to hit home runs in every election, right? What's a home run? Presidential election, governor, mayor, but we gotta get on base, singles and doubles, 
all politics, like you said, is local. All politics is local. And to me, local politics are the singles and doubles. We got to get our people on base so that we can start creating these programs that can help us to expand our communities and our economics and solve the problems that have been challenged. You know, African-American children in the United States are three times more likely to get asthma than any other child in the United States. Why? Because of fossil fuels and emissions in the predominantly high level um, concentrations of black and brown people, right? Why is our life expectancy shorter than white Americans, Latin Americans, and Asian Americans? Because one, the, the water we drink, the air we breathe, and our, and our options on how we're eating. So when I run for public service commission, I want folks to know this is not about just about your light bill and your gas bill. This is about shifting public health in our favor. You will get someone that even if, if I get outvoted, I'm gonna be talking about public health, environmental issues, lowering your utility bills, energy assistance programs, and yes, expanding broadband so that the same information I have access to and you have access to, we can share with the communities around us. That is perfect. And you just kind of segued into what I wanted to hit you with next. So you're laying out all of the ground rules and you're talking about the things that we definitely need to focus on just as a people to start with, but as a state and a wider community, despite your ethnicity, most importantly. But what we know we have common ground is around the economic initiative. Those of us that are of color and poor and can't make it work have the same challenge that a rural white person has. So when you make for the push of strengthening utility assistance programs, yep. what does that look like and what opposition do you anticipate running into trying to strengthen those programs? Yeah, I mean, let's be honest, man. I mean, and I'm, I'm going to say something because uh, most people, as you listen to me, I'm, I'm a history buff. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a nerd, man. I, I, I damn near cried when Alex Trebek died, man. I was, I, I went to, to Jeopardy University, man. <laughs> so, I hear you. I hear you. So, about, we're all good. We're yeah, all good. Man, but, um, but what I'm about to say um, from a historical context, I want to put this into perspective. Dr. King um, was not assassinated because he just believed in racial justice, right? Dr. King was assassinated after he put out an economic plan to address the, the challenges of poor people. Let's be very clear. The last campaign that Dr. King was a part of was the poor people's campaign. Why? Because the largest uh, block of Americans are the underserved and unheard uh, communities that are unseen and undersupported, right? Let's just be very, very clear. Um, I, I'm gonna put it to you like this, man. When, when I think of these communities and low income and, and, and heat and energy assistance programs, that means a lot to me because I study the movement. I study the history and I've seen uh, things get more expensive, right? Like over the last 30, 40, 50 years, it's the cost of living has gone up and wages have pretty much stayed the same. You got some states with, with their, uh, you know, uh, minimum wage, you know, $7, you know, under $10. I mean, how do you live um, in a city like that with that kind of pay? Energy assistance is critical. In Georgia, uh, we have the fifth highest energy rates uh, I'm sorry, uh, electric rates in the United States, the fifth highest, and we have the eighth or 11th highest utility rates in the country. Uh, one way to quantify that is 5% of our utility bill, of our paycheck goes to our utility bill in the United States. So this is the national average, right? But in Georgia, right around 18% 
of our paycheck goes to our utility bill. So you talking about about a fifth of our paycheck just to pay the bills, right? So if we're not talking about energy assistance, what are we talking about? If we're not talking about low and moderate income families, what are we talking about? So how do you get there now becomes the answer that you and I are talking about. And the way you get there is by a combination, one, of policy that will be driven, in my opinion, at the federal level with Congress and with our U.S. Senate. The second way, the local level statewide through our legislative body. And then the third way where people like myself that are down the ballot that can really focus and hone in on making sure those federal assistance programs, the low income heat and energy assistance program can get to the people that need it. The problem is whenever a utility rate goes up, we're not considering a person's socioeconomic status. So what happens is bills are going up on people that have stagnant wages, that are underemployed and underbanked, and then these individuals cannot afford it. Then when their power gets cut off, their credit is impacted, they got a disconnection fee, and then don't, don't let it get beyond that 10-day period in many of our cities because then you have an application fee, and if your credit is bad, you got to pay three, four, five hundred $500 just to get it cut back on. I mean, we, we literally have a system that keeps people in poverty. And I think it's, it's, it's of the utmost importance for us to understand that if we want to succeed in this state and around this country, we have to change the way we're doing business. I'm just, um, yeah, wow, Daniel, because uh, you just laid it out. You laid it out. Now, the, the one piece that I want to throw right back at you, and I'm going to throw it in your face on that one. Yeah. That resonates. It's good for us. It's good for the grassroots. When you come across the ideological divisive and the first thing out of their mouth is, well, Daniel, I don't really care about what you said. How are we going to pay for it? Or yeah. When you have that individual and you know you because you see them as you go across the state, for whatever reason, they've been turned, right, to think that what you're doing is not right for them. How do you face those two challenges? You got to respond to that's, the, it's yeah. no money for this. Or the fact nah, that man, I it, just it, don't it, believe it, you're right. Yeah, but, but the thing is, numbers don't lie. Receipts don't lie. We got a $30 billion nuclear project right now that people are paying for, not Georgia Power shareholders. We got a $500 million coal ash cleanup project that ratepayers are paying for that you don't know about because you don't get an itemized bill. Let me just talk directly to your audience. And when you don't get an itemized bill, you don't know what you're paying for. That's why when you see your bill go up, it's a combination of either your home is not weatherized and you're using more power than you need to, or you're getting screwed in some capacity. Excuse me for the term, but let's just be honest about what is happening to the community. Right now, let me start with how I want to solve the problem for the naysayers. We have to look at models that have worked around the country. In Georgia, for example, Lawrenceville, Georgia, they've enacted what are called utility stabilization programs. Utility stabilization just means that you take public and private dollars, you invest it into the community, and you build upon that so that you can now utilize those funds that are separate to, to lower a person's utility burden. Right? And don't tell me it can't be done because we just had this pandemic hit and we just found four trillion dollars out the sky it's money out there it's just we're not the priority so let me be very clear to people that say how are you going to pay for it because when when wall street needed to be bailed out we paid for it when the car industry needed to be paid out bailed out we paid for it when the banks needed to be bailed out we paid for it so don't tell me you can't find money for struggling families that help to build the society in which we're standing on and you're going to ask me how we're going to pay for it. Where's the money going to come from? Where'd the money come from from the stimulus that went to corporations? 
You can't tell me that a profitable company like Georgia Power, which I have nothing against, I hope they make a billion more dollars, but don't make it on the backs of ratepayers that have to clean up their mistakes. And at the, at the end of the day, that is my passion. And all this comes from those questions that I've gotten from people that say, yeah, you know, you, you're this liberal, progressive, socialist guy, and you just want the Green New Deal. And man, miss me with all that. At the end of the day, you show me a corporate, because what, what a lot of people try to say is that they try to say we're on, uh, we, Democrats support welfare. What's the difference in welfare to the community versus welfare for a corporation? When it's welfare for a corporation, it's called a bailout, right? When it's welfare for the people, oh, it's socialism. Like, come on, man, you can't, you can't have it both ways. I'm, I'm the wrong, I'm the wrong right candidate to have because I, I know all those arguments and I've studied it and I know it and I understand it. And basic de de democracy, mathematics, and a capitalistic society says the priority is what gets paid for. So the way we fix that is we got to make the people a priority. Right now, the banks are a priority. Wall Street is a priority, right? Big Pharma is a priority. The utility companies, priority. So where does that lead us? At the bottom of the barrel. And there's a, there's a statement I always use that says, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And at the end of the day, the folks at the table have been making decisions for everybody else. And while they get wealthy, while they do well, we struggle. And, I, and one example I'll give you is the Public Service Commission that I'm running for right now, they went out and they, they voted to allow the utility companies to get what's deemed as COVID losses, right? So the utility companies come and they say, hey, you know what? I get it. Unemployment numbers were high. COVID pretty much shut down the economy. People weren't working. We still need that money. And I get it. You, people were still using power. Somebody got to pay for it. Right. But don't tell me that on top of what I owe, you get to recoup more losses when I don't get to get back those wages that I didn't get. And that is my fight, man. My passion is because don't give me an argument for yourself that we can't use for our communities. If you're going to use that argument that, you know, you guys struggled and suffered, then when you guys go bankrupt, don't tell me that, that you don't have to suffer the same way we do. We have to change that narrative. I didn't mean to go off on a tangent, brother, oh, but oh. I'm a fighter, man. I'm a, I don't, I, I do not, Daniel, I don't have any leeway for it, man. Daniel, that tangent is the right tangent. As you're talking, I'm sitting here thinking, you got to get this brother branded. You know, I mean, you know, way beyond <laughs> the norm. Because no, seriously, honestly, right? The things you just laid out, about four or five critical points that everyday people don't think about. And what happens is you keep running across those people who stand across from you and say you're a crazy liberal or whatnot, and they don't nope. know that you're talking about them. That the thing you no, want you, to you, do is help them. You know what blew my mind, and I, I'm gonna say this real quick because I, I, I'm enjoying the conversation. When Obamacare was at the height of its scrutiny, there was a study done in the United States, right? I'm from Boston, right? I was born in Boston, grew up in Columbus, Georgia. But Obamacare was basically Mitt Romney's health plan, right? Yeah. Right. Most people don't even know that was Mitt Romney's healthcare plan. It just got rebranded to your point about saying branded. So they did this study at the height of the Obama of Obamacare, and they just took off the word Obamacare, right? And they said, would you support this plan? And 82% of the people that were against it supported it. That's and right. then when you put Obamacare back on it, or you put anything Obama, this was done like in 20. 10 or 2012, either at the, at the end of his first term or the beginning of his second. second yeah. And what happened was 
they did this study just to see what overall American sentiment was. And it just went to show that folks didn't like it because it wasn't a good plan. They didn't like it because Obama's name was on it. So we got to <laughs> really, we, we got to stop with the shenanigans, man. This whole bait and switch. I mean, it's, it's gotten us in a really bad position that ultimately got Donald Trump elected because a lack of knowledge caused the community to perish. That's it. Oh man, that's it. Lack of knowledge. We got to say it real, right? And, and, I, and I've said this oftentimes in my writing and on the show, Daniel, you know, we are in a real life Game of Thrones. We love our entertainment. Yep. The Game of Thrones of politics really does kill people and yep. lack the critical cognition and the true discernment to see it when it happens to us. I'm going to go off on a quick tangent real quick because I'm enjoying the conversation. <laughs> and, and, and I want to go back to the Obamacare one. Um, if you care to look for it, you know, there's a 60 Minutes episode when I forgot which guy was conducting the interview, but you know, he's up there in Kentucky and in West Virginia and he's in coal mining country, right? And the people were, you know, they vehemently hated Obama. Can't stand him, he stinks on ice, right? Because he's a socialist, communistic, fascistic, um, alien from Mars with demon blood that was born in Kenya and all of that. But they said he was really trying to destroy their livelihood. And you know you need to re- you know you need to repeal that Obamacare, but the whole show really was about the black law. So this one woman was talking about how you know she really appreciates people looking out for her. She lost her husband, doesn't necessarily want her son to go back in the mines, but you know she really does appreciate the fact that the Affordable Care Act is there for us because without that check, she simply couldn't make it. She was not going to be able to make ends meet, and she yeah. certainly couldn't cover the disastrous medical bills that she had been dealing with before her uh, husband passed and the rest of her family who was struggling as well. So the commentator said, well, so you really do appreciate the ACA. She said, I I appreciate the ACA. I can't do without it. And he said, but you don't want Obamacare. She said, I don't believe in government interference and Obamacare Mm -hmm. really should be repealed. And he paused, you know, it was, oh, since it's 60 minutes, it's not a comedy show, right? You know, the, the commentator, the, the, the interviewer just yeah, basically I said, heard it. well, you do know Obamacare is the Affordable Care Act. And she just paused and went, what? Exactly. This but, you know, everyday it, Americans. And, but I, but I'll, I'll say this, man, because, you know, I watch, you know, n- not since COVID, but I used to watch a lot of, you know, Jimmy Kimmel and, you know, Fallon and just different shows. And they would have these skits where they go into the community yes. and like American civics. And um, I used to laugh at that stuff until I realized, you know what, man, it's not funny. It's not. You know it's what I'm saying? It's not, it's not funny because people like myself, which is why I go so hard in this space, people like myself have to do a better job of educating people even when we're not on the ballot. And so that's why, like, all this knowledge and information I'm just spitting out, man, I didn't go to school for this. I went to school for international business and finance. I was trying to be a diplomat like my grandfather. You know what I'm saying? That I had no intention of going into environmental justice or energy policy or civil rights. No intention. But when I realized what was killing our communities, right, it made me say, okay, you got to go study it. You got to become consumed with what you want to change. And, um, and I'm fortunate to have had a family and a support system and a community around me that allowed me to sacrifice my 20s so I can be where I am in my 40s. I hear that. I hear that. And, you, and you're right. You have the knowledge, and because it's very evident what you're saying, to combat that. Those of us that also have that knowledge and are passionate about it, we have to, I'm just going to really say it, we got to back you, brother. We got to back and we've got to say the message and put it out there. One of the yeah. things that is ugly but true, and, and you know, you, you, you probably heard it from time to time, 
But the fastest way to turn a poor Republican into a Democrat is to give them cancer. You know, wow. and, and, it's, and it's ugly, but it's true. And you see it time and time again. They're virulent over here until something bad happens. And all of yeah. a sudden, they want people to help. They want to know where the help is. They are asking for government intervention. But six months ago, you were marching against that because you were afraid somebody was going to take your gun and your ability to walk down the street and hurl because that's what you want to do. But now you want help. I mean, at the end of the day, man, and I, I, I know we got to wrap it up pretty soon, but man, at the end of the day, man, um, I, I think it's, it's sad that we've gotten to a point in society, specifically in the United States, where we've gotten to that space of it got to be the absolute worst, right? You got to be able to, you know, have hit, you know, your lowest point for you to begin to listen and to see. I, I was watching something um, a couple of months ago, man, when the George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor stuff was all going on. And uh, right when the NBA playoffs, so at, at the height of the Black Lives Matter movement um, during the Breonna Taylor and all that, and I'm not saying this, you know, um, about the organization. I'm just saying at the height of America's attention on cities burning and uh, black lives being lost on, on camera, uh, the sentiment in the US was like the highest it had ever been. It was somewhere like in the mid like 80s, almost at 90% of, yes, we seriously have a problem. But then in like July-ish, they asked that same question and they said, uh, you know, black lives matter, this movement, what are your sentiments? And that thing went from like the 80s to like the 60s and then it just kept dropping and and people were like well what changed and i told them what changed was sports happened like we're we're the most distracted nation in the world right when the reason why brianna taylor and george floyd uh and ahmaud Aubrey were important was because will smith has this saying racism hasn't gotten worse it's gotten filmed and we didn't have anything else to turn to we couldn't turn to live shows because there were no live shows. We couldn't go to live sporting events because everything was shut down. We couldn't go to concerts. We couldn't go to birthday parties. So we had to watch it every single day. And that made us here mentally understand that this is something that we're all in together. So I'm saying that because it resonates with what you said about a person getting cancer. We shouldn't have to be shut down as a society to care about our neighbor. But unfortunately, sometimes the worst has to happen for the best of us to show up. And, and again, that's, that's one of the things as a parent, you don't want your son or daughter to touch a hot stove to find out it'll burn your hand. But if that's what it takes for you to not get burned up in a fire, then we're going to have to figure it out. And um, right. I know these aren't great analogies, man, but we got, we, we got to figure it out as, as a country, man. We do. We do. And one of the things that you say is, you know, is that you focus on compassion and empathy. Yeah. And how do and we leverage that? I want to ask you from your perspective as you roll into this, and we're going to get you elected, but how are you going to use that going forward, right? Because there is a large constituency in the state of Georgia that's it's clearly just in the middle, and they may vacillate back and forth, but we've got to be able to get with them utilizing those two words, right? You know, how does that work in action? Share that with us. So let me get your question right. You're saying, how does compassion and empathy work in action? Yeah. So I wrote a book on nationalism. Um, my book is called Nationalism Without Compassion. 
and it's based off of Gandhi's seven social sins. And I decided I wanted to make an eighth social sin to make modern day challenges relevant to this generation. And the example I use is of a brother named Hawk, uh, Hawk Newsom, who started the Black Lives Matter movement um, in New York. And he went to this uh, rally called the Mother of All Rallies, right? And during the rally, it was a pro-Trump group that was having a rally and then a Black Lives Matter group that was trying to protest it, right? And while the Black Lives Matter people were gathering up, they, they, it became, began to get, um, not a physical altercation, but it, you know, people's, people's, people's emotions started, you know, started building up. And um, the, the organizer, the Trump supporter that organized the event, I forgot the brother's name, a uh, white gentleman, he said, uh, you know what? We all believe in America, right? And everybody was like, yeah. He said, we all believe in freedom of speech, right? And he was like, yeah. So he said, I'm gonna invite y'all to come on stage and I'm gonna give you three minutes talk about whatever you want to talk about. He said, I'm not going to tell them not to boo. I'm not going to tell them, tell them to chair, but I'm going to give you three minutes to say whatever's on your mind. I want you to go research that. I want your viewers to go research that. And I want you to understand that that moment in history is speaks to the question you just asked me about compassion and empathy. What makes us different in the United States is what makes us strong. The fact that we have different religion, different faith, different cultures, experiences, black backgrounds, like that is what this this American experience, this this melting pot, is all about. You know, I tell people all the time, growing up in the South had a tremendous impact on me because you know, SEC football is the most integrated space in the Southeastern United States, but the church is the most segregated. That's and there's something wrong when sports brings us together, but we're divided by our faith. So I I would say that we have to begin to put ourselves in the shoes of other individuals. That are that are in the world that are in these spaces that, that we that we have ventured into and we got to take time to just say you know what i get it right like i also mentioned in my book that you know what i i don't have a lot of understanding and love for someone that wants to oppress hurt or kill me but for the child of the oppressor i can find compassion and i want i want everyone as i as i close i actually have an interview i got to jump on um, and this has been so meaningful to me. So I pray, brother, you invite me back and we continue to build. Absolutely. But there's one part of my book where I say the compassion and the empathy we must have for the child of an oppressor. We can't blame the next generation for the sins of their parents and the sins of, of their grandparents. We have to find a way to rethink how we communicate with people that we have differences in. The first campaign I ran. I was the first African-American to run for office in Forsyth County, Georgia. And our campaign slogan was finding common ground. It wasn't that I was pro, you know, Republican issue in that part of the state, because I, I believe in equality and equity. I believe that if you say that you're pro-life, don't just be pro-life at conception, be pro-life when those brothers and sisters are getting locked up. Right. And, and, and don't, don't tell me, don't twist your doctrine. So I'm saying all of that because it is incumbent upon those of us who know and have the ability to put ourselves in a position to be the best for the society in which we live, rather than be an impediment and a part of that problem that I keep touching on. You see that problem, be a solution, and don't, don't become who you were called to replace. Awesome. Daniel, I can't think of a better way to close out this episode of Edge the Edges. We thank you for your time. And uh, brother, we definitely have to have you back. 
and love, man. That we've got your back. Thank you. Runoff. January 5th runoff. If you are watching, first of all, support my brother. Support my brother and, and support each other. But vote like your life and your lights depend on it on January 5th for Daniel Blackman for your next public service commissioner. I'm going to steal something from one of my mentors, Shirley Franklin. She said, if you make me mayor, I'm going to make you proud. So if you make me your public service commissioner, I'm going to make you proud. Love and respect to you, brother. Much respect. Much respect. Indeed. Much love and respect to Daniel Blackman for coming to speak with us on Etch the Edges. A very compelling conversation and a very, very important message, clear consideration of why it's absolutely essential that we engage appropriately in politics because all politics is local and everything that we do local involves politics. And you can try to ignore it, but politics will not ignore you. And that is the bottom line. We hope you've enjoyed listening to our podcast, and if so, please like and subscribe. Tell your family, tell your friends. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Etch the Edges, and don't forget to visit our website at EtchTheEdges.com. Check us out. Join the movement. Express your commitment to the cause. The cause for a better America. A better world. Where we all can stand together at the mountaintop. Do it for America. And if you're a Georgia resident, don't forget to vote January 5th in the runoff. Me personally, I'm voting for Warnock, Ossoff, and last, but without equivocation, most certainly not least, Blackman. I encourage you to do the same. Be good to yourselves and each other. We'll see you next time.